Amen. Again, welcome tonight. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, please take that out uh, and open it up to Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you didn't bring a Bible, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are some black Bibles that should be underneath the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and uh, turn to Galatians chapter 1, which is, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, page 972. This is our second sermon in our new series in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And tonight we're looking at chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Galatians 1, 11 through 24. So let me read this part of God's word for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Okay, here we go. Galatians 1, Paul writing, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. We need God's help to understand this part of the Bible, so let's ask him for that. Will you pray with me, please? Father, again, we come and ask for you to work. Work mightily right now. Show us grace and give us illumination in our minds and adoration in our hearts so that we will obey you and love you more fully as a result of what takes place here this night. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to submit our lives to it, to trust that you are speaking to us in it truly, and to believe it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting tonight with a story, uh, a story out of Moorhead, Kentucky. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Moorhead, Kentucky. I haven't, but I looked it up on Google Maps, and uh, I'm surprised that Google Maps knows where it is. Uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, here's the story. A lady was cruising around, and I got this off of a blog, by the way, so who knows if it's credible. A lady was cruising around in a PT cruiser and skidded accidentally into a stream with the doors locked, and the car began sinking fast. She managed to pull a window down, crawl out of the window into freezing water, dog paddle to shore, and crawl slowly to a very under-traveled road in a desolate area. She muttered as she was crawling a prayer to Jesus, please send someone, an angel, to help me, or I'm going to freeze to death. It had been in the teens or lower in Moorhead that week. Suddenly, she saw car lights 
coming along the under-traveled road and staggered into the road, frantically waving her arms for help. And sure enough, the first car, this first car that passed by stopped. And sure enough, it was someone who knew her. It was a man whose name was Angel. Mr. Angel picked her up, took her home, and she is now doing fine, minus one new PT cruiser. Now, that is a great story. I mean, who would ever put that together, that she prays for an angel to help her, and a guy named Angel shows up and rescues her as her hero. Now, I watch you listen to my sermons, and I watch you listen to Pastor Phil's sermons, and you know, sometimes I don't think you're doing a very good job. Sometimes I don't think I'm doing a very good job listening to my own sermons. Uh, but when a story is told, almost always, you perk up. This morning, when Pastor Phil told that story about Caleb, I, I looked around because I knew I, I was paying attention. But I knew I was preaching this tonight, and so I kind of looked around to get confirmation of what I'm about to say, and it was confirmed. All of you were glued to him at that moment. And the reason for that is because stories are powerful. They have an inherent power. There's something attractive about them. There's something that makes us want to listen. Tonight, we're going to hear a powerful story, a story of a man named Paul who wrote a large portion of what we call now the New Testament. And as we're continuing in this journey through Galatians together, this part of Paul's story that he tells us in these verses tonight is going to be fundamentally important for the rest of the letter that he's writing to these churches. So let me remind you of where we were last week and what we've seen so far in the letter. Paul, uh, on one of his first missionary journeys, traveled through a region that is now southern Turkey and that was then called Galatia and planted in about AD 47 a number of churches there that eventually made up uh, the presbytery of Galatia. A number of churches were planted by him, and after he had established those churches, a few years later he left. And after Paul left, a group of men traveled in to southern Turkey and went to these newly planted congregations and began to tell um, these new churches things different than what Paul had spoken to them when he had planted those churches and established them on the gospel. These men are known in the New Testament as the Judaizers. And here's what we saw last week, what their message was. They basically would come in and say, we hear that you have believed upon the gospel that was preached to you by the Apostle Paul. And we want to say that that's wonderful. Uh, what Paul says in many ways is great. He's told you that you must place your faith in the risen Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, in order to be reconciled to God. And that's true. You do have to believe in Jesus. But Paul omitted other things that are essential. These men said, virtually, you don't just have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to become Jewish. You have to be Judaized, hence the name Judaizers. They said Jesus is essential. Belief in him is important, but it is not sufficient. You must, in order to be a part of the community of faithful, and in order to be reconciled to your creator, also get circumcised if you're male observe certain festival days and Sabbaths, and basically look and act like a Jew. And this sort of teaching began to creep into the Galatian churches, so much so that eventually the Apostle Paul got wind of it and wrote a letter in response to these new things that were taking place in the churches. And that letter is what we now have in our Bibles, and we call it the letter to the Galatians. And in this letter, Paul is countering this argument that you need something other than Jesus in order to be made right with God. He is 
speaking about their gospel, which he calls in verse 6 of chapter 1, no gospel at all, and spending the entire letter vociferously, strenuously, powerfully arguing that the gospel that he had preached to them was the true gospel. And so we see this week, Paul begins an, really an, a large autobiographical section that continues all the way through chapter 1 and goes on into chapter 2. And we're going to look at that this time and next time. Uh, this is actually the largest section like this in all the New Testament. We hear more about Paul's story here than anywhere else in the Bible. And this autobiographical section is actually so long that it makes up one-fifth of the entire letter of Galatians. So it's, it's important. It's not a section to be overlooked. So why does Paul write autobiographically at this point in his letter? What is he getting at in telling the Galatians right now a little bit of his own story? Well, the fundamental issue is found in verse 11 of the text that we read. Paul wants to make it clear that he has authority, full authority, from Jesus Christ as an apostle. He wants to prove that his authority comes directly from God and that it's not a derivative authority. It's not an authority that's dependent upon man. And the reason that Paul wants to do this, you see, is because these Judaizers had been saying things to the Galatians, like I mentioned a moment ago, but they had also been saying things like this. You know, you know Paul really is... He's a junior varsity apostle. Um, he, he didn't go to you know, the best training grounds, and, and he's not quite on the same level as a guy like Peter or a guy like James, and really he's not telling you the full story. In fact, he alludes, Paul alludes to this in verse 10 of chapter 1. They were saying things like, Paul really is just trying to, he's trying to be a man pleaser. He's telling you all this stuff about grace alone. Grace is all you need. You don't have to do anything to be made right with God. And he's just telling you pagan Gentiles that because he wants you to be happy. He wants you to think that you really don't have to do anything. He's not telling you the hard stuff, the stuff about becoming Jewish. And he's not really authoritative. He's sort of making some of this stuff up. And you know what he used to do. He used to persecute the church. So listen, you shouldn't assume that everything Paul told you is valid And you for sure shouldn't assume that everything Paul told you comes directly from God. So Paul writes to counter that sort of thinking that had crept in from the Judaizers to these young church plants in the region of Galatia. And the way he counters that here is by telling his story. And as Paul tells this part of his story, there's two things I want you to see tonight. We're going to see how Paul got the gospel and, as it were, how the gospel got Paul. Okay? So first, how Paul got the gospel. Now remember, as I said, uh, the main idea that Paul wants to get across is that he has full authority as an apostle. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1 are the theme verses of the entire letter. Look at what he says there. I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, what I preached to you when I was there, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it, I did not get it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's referring there to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament. There Jesus appeared to him, and at the same time he was converted to faith in the risen Messiah and commissioned as an apostle, as a delegate as an emissary to bring the message of Jesus, particularly to the Gentile people. And Paul is saying here, listen, what I told you when I was with you is true. It comes directly from God. No man commissioned me. Jesus commissioned me. 
Let's take a time out. Okay, parenthetical section. Um, can we trust Paul here? <laughs> you know, Paul's not the first guy to come along claiming to have received a direct revelation from God and that therefore we should listen to him as one bearing divine authority. So, so what makes Paul different from, say, the Mormons? What makes him different from Muhammad? What makes him different from the crackpot on the streets of Times Square with the sign over his chest that says the end is near? Well, that's a fair question. It's a good question. It's a question I want to address real briefly here as we look at this. Uh, the New Testament goes to great lengths to show the credibility of Paul's conversion and Paul's commissioning as an apostle. The book I mentioned a minute ago, the book of Acts, provides us with the historical account of that story that Paul's telling here. And Luke, the writer of Acts, goes to great detail in Acts to show the guy he's writing to, Theophilus, that he has taken painstaking efforts to make sure that the account of the early church, the book of Acts that he's giving, is historically credible. He's, he says this even in chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. He says, I've, I've done a lot in my first account, the Gospel of Luke, to show you what has happened historically, and I'm going to continue to do that now in Acts. And so we know that Luke, in compiling Acts, interviewed all sorts of people, people who were eyewitnesses to the things that had taken place. And so we know for a fact that Paul or excuse me, that Luke had, had interviewed Ananias, who is the man who sort of finds Paul in Acts 9 after he's been converted. How else, by the way, would Luke have gotten Acts, uh, Ananias' story to write in Acts? And we also know that Luke very likely interviewed the two men that were with Paul, walking with him to Damascus, who, who were eyewitnesses of what happened when Jesus appeared to him. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 19, that after Paul regained his sight after his Damascus Road experience and had been converted, he immediately got up in Damascus and began preaching the gospel. So this doesn't happen. This wasn't like a private affair. This was a very public thing. There were many credible testimonies to it. People saw it. There were eyewitnesses, and these were the people that Luke had interviewed. The point is that what Paul is telling you is validated historically elsewhere, particularly in the book of Acts. And so I want you to be encouraged and uh, to believe that what you're getting here in the Bible is good history. That's how history works. The more evidence you have, the more eyewitness testimony you possess, the better, uh, the more credible your story is. Listen, Acts has massive amounts of eyewitness testimony, massive amounts of evidence to show us that Paul isn't just some crackpot here making this stuff up. People saw it. So there are witnesses. That's one reason we should believe Paul. Another reason we should believe him is that he died for what he believed. <laughs> that after this happened to him on the road to Damascus, the thing he's telling us here in Galatians chapter 1, his life was completely and irreversibly altered. And he faced death every day from Jews and Gentiles alike in spreading this gospel. So much so that he eventually was martyred, killed for what he believed. Now, if he was making all this up, at one point you would think, you would think that he would give up, give it up, give up the honest answer if, if it was a lie. But it, he could have been, I guess, psychologically deranged, but there's not much evidence for that. The best explanation for why Paul would die for this is that what, what he says happened really happened. So Paul isn't just some crazy guy. He's not just some random dude saying, God spoke to me, thus saith the Lord, here's what you must do. He's a man who has really been commissioned by Jesus Christ personally to act as an apostle. End of parenthesis. Time out over. So, Paul is trying to establish his authority. He said, 
Jesus himself is the one who made me an apostle. And then in verse 13, he begins, as I mentioned, to tell you his early story, his early career as a missionary. And he does that all the way through the end of the chapter. He says that, um, look down in verse 17, right after he was converted, he didn't go immediately to Jerusalem, but he went to Arabia to preach, by the way. And he was there for three years. Some say that he went in Arabia to just be silent and be in a quiet place for three years, but that, that's not what the text says here or anywhere, and I think it's very likely that what he was doing in Arabia is preaching. The reason for that is that his whole argument here is, to show, is intended to show us that his preaching, his apostolic ministry, isn't derivative of any other authority. He's saying, I was doing this before I met any other apostle. So we should think that what he's doing in Arabia for the first three years of his ministry is ministering. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Verse 18, he says, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, same guy, and remained with him 15 days. The reason Paul says that is because he wants you to know that before he had ever met Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the guy that these Judaizers would have said is credible and legitimate, he had already been ministering. He had already been acting as an apostle. And notice there, he says he was only with him 15 days. Why in the world would Paul include that? Well, he's including that because he wants the readers then and us as readers now to know that 15 days isn't nearly enough time for Peter to sort of give him a crash course in biblical interpretation and in apostolic ministry and in preaching. No, he was already doing that. He wasn't Peter's pupil. He wasn't learning from Peter. He just says, I went up to visit Peter, to inquire with Peter. They were probably comparing notes about their own apostolic ministry. And then Paul says he saw James, and then after that he left Jerusalem and went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, verse 21, where he ministered there for a number of years and had so much success that rumors eventually got back to Judea and to Jerusalem that the guy who used to persecute them is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So Paul is giving his story here. And remember, the main reason he's doing all this is to show us that he is legit as an apostle. His ministry is credible. No man, Peter, James, no one commissioned him. Jesus commissioned him. Therefore, Galatians, don't believe the Judaizers. What I spoke to you when I was there is what God spoke to me. And what God spoke to me is fully authoritative. The message that I deliver to you is the true gospel. Now, <laughs> I recognize that some of you have been listening to this maybe a little bit and might be asking yourself, you know, I'm with you, Pastor Luke, I agree, but really, to be perfectly honest, you know, who really cares? Um, I'm trying to raise kids. I've got, I've got a lot of stuff on my plate at work this week. Um, you know, I've got relatives that are facing serious health issues. What does it matter whether or not Paul was a legitimate apostle to me? I mean, come on, give me a break. Hey, listen, that's a fair question. If that's what you're asking, that's what you're thinking, and you've kind of wandered off, now would be a great time to come back. Because I'm going to tell you why you should keep listening and why this part of God's word is relevant for you. It's relevant for you because Paul's apostleship being verified and being credible and being absolutely derived not from any man but from God alone means that Paul's authority is God's authority. And just as he told the Galatians, when I spoke to you, what I said to you was God's will and God's word for you. So now when he speaks to you, 
through the letters that we have enshrined in our New Testaments. And we read these letters, we know that we're not just reading the musings of some really brilliant Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago. We're reading the absolute word of God. The fact that Paul was a legitimate A-team, varsity-level apostle means that you can trust that what he wrote is from God. So when you're struggling to raise kids and you're reading the Bible for nourishment and encouragement and you look at a part of Paul's letters like Philippians chapter 4 and you read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which moms need to read every day, I know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can know. But that's not just Paul telling you that, although it is Paul. That is God speaking truth into your life now. When you have a lot on your plate this week at work, and when you're not sure how things are going to go down, and when you're really worried and anxious, and you go to God's word for encouragement, and you read something like Romans 8.28, which says, I know that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can know that that's not just a man speaking to you. That's a man who has been given the authority of the divine God to proclaim God's divine truth into your lives now. When you're struggling with the loss of a loved one or with the impending loss of a loved one and you read something like 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul writes, he will come quickly and the dead in Christ will rise first and we will meet him and be with them in the air. You can know that those aren't just sort of the, the hopeful, optimistic ramblings of Paul. That is God's word for you now. And the reason you can trust that those things are God's word for you now is because Paul was a legitimate apostle. So that's, that's how Paul got the gospel. But if we're really going to get sort of the juiciest, fullest part of this passage, we've got to also see how the gospel got Paul. Uh, notice there at the beginning, verse 13, 14, 15, that as Paul's sort of telling the Galatians about his ministry and about how he's a legitimate apostle and about how... Jesus alone, without any human mediator, revealed and commissioned him as an apostle. Paul just kind of can't help but talk a little bit more about his story, about his conversion. He can't escape in this autobiographical section um, the beauty of his own story. And listen, if you're, if you're a Christian here tonight, you can relate to that. You, know, you, you just can't get away from the beauty of what God has done in your story. It's, it's captivated you. It's transformed your life in a radical way. Or has it? Are you here um, as one who professes faith in Christ, but as you read these things from Paul and as you hear me speaking, you think, I can't really relate to that. You know, I've, I've never really felt that being a Christian is a radical, revolutionary, life-altering experience for me. Um, I just, I'm not sure I get it. You know, if, if that's what you're thinking, uh, then, then let me lovingly and gently encourage you to reconsider whether or not you are in Christ. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Uh, perhaps if that's what you're feeling tonight, you're just having a bad day and in the spiritual doldrums. That's possible. But perhaps there really hasn't been any sort of massive, massive evidence that you've had a transformative experience through knowing Jesus. So maybe you should ask yourself some questions tonight. Is Jesus really my king? Does every decision I make 
even in the day-to-day, get colored by the fact that I follow Christ? Have I possibly mistaken religiosity for a relationship? Is it possible that I think that just because I've grown up in the church or been baptized or read the Bible from time to time or have a pretty much a decently moral life that I'm okay with God, but what Paul's writing here is totally, totally foreign to me. If those things are true of you, then maybe it's time for you to come to God for the first time. Because, listen, your experience isn't going to exactly mimic Paul's experience in every way, but a real encounter with Jesus is always, always radical. So Paul's telling us here about how not just he got the gospel, but he can't help but tell us about how the gospel got him in radical ways. And I want to just briefly, as we close out, point out a couple of things that he mentions there in verses 13 through 16 particularly. A couple of things he says about his story. First thing I want you to see, verse 13, is that you can never be too bad or too good for the gospel to get you. For you, he says, verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was the man who sat sort of on the sidelines as Jewish men would take huge rocks and kick a Christian into a pit and throw the rock upon their head, crushing their skull so they would die because they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. The first time we get introduced to Paul in the Bible, we see him applauding, cheering on that exact event. He was an evil man. He was so bad that he thought his bad was good, and that's the worst kind of bad, right? He was a Pharisee. He says he was, verse 14, so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers that anyone who didn't believe his exact, perfectly rigid Judaism was someone who deserved to be put to death. And so he persecuted the church of God. But, verse 15, when God met him, there was a change. Listen, I don't know where all of you are tonight. You might be at a place where you're thinking, you don't know, Pastor Luke, what I've done. It might just have been one event that's happened in your past that was so bad, that was so heinous, that was so dreadful, that every day you wake up and to some degree or another, you carry around the guilt of that and the shame of that so that it taints every aspect of your life, even today. You might be thinking, there's no way that God wants any part of me. There's no way that Jesus, this perfect, righteous, good man, wants to be with me. Listen, there's nothing that you could do, the stench of which is so strong that the beautiful odor of Jesus' grace can't overcome. There's no way you can be too bad for God's grace. And there's no way you can be too good for God's grace either. You see, Paul thought he was, in a sense, too good which is really, really, really bad, (laughs) right? Some of you might be there. You might think, you know, I'm actually doing pretty well. Um, I'm better than probably 98% of people I know. know. And the reason I know that is because all those people really annoy and aggravate me all the time. So I must be better than them. Um, You know, I've never killed anyone. I've surely never done any of the things Paul writes about here. I'm doing okay. Listen, you're never good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. And Jesus is so good that he shows you how not good you are. You can never be too bad for God to get you, and you can never be too good for God to get you. It's the first thing that Paul's story reminds us of, right? Second thing Paul's story reminds us of, verse 15, is that God is the initiator. God is the initiator. Look at those verbs in verse 15. These are glorious verbs. 
But look at who the, ob- or the subject of every verb is. When he who had set me apart, that clearly is God, the Father. When he who had set me apart, when? Before I was born, God must be in control. He's doing things to Paul. Before Paul was born, he's planned it out. And when he called me by his grace. Man, I love that phrase. I've been sucking on that one like an everlasting gobstopper this week. That's an awesome phrase. When he called me by his grace. And when he was pleased. That's a good one too pleased, not just when he revealed, but when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. God is the one doing this. God is the initiator of salvation. God is the one who dispenses grace freely when and where and upon whom he will. You have been in the best possible sense objectified by God. You are always the object and never the subject when it comes to salvation. God is the actor. God is the initiator. God is the subject. If you get anything about Christianity, then surely you must get that. At the end of the day, it's not me that did this. It's God that did this for me. At the end of the day, it's not because I was righteous. It's not because I did some great thing. It's not because I was penitent enough. It's because God decided to show me grace. Man, Paul's story reminds us of that too, doesn't it? You could never be too bad or too good for the gospel. God is the initiator of salvation. Verse 16. Those, this is the last thing that Paul's story reminds us of here that I want to mention to you. Uh, When he was pleased to reveal his son to me, why? Why did he reveal his son to him? In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Those who are called by his grace are sent. Now, that's also true of you. No, you are not an apostle with a capital A like Paul was. But you do have apostolic ministry if you're a member of Christ's church. And there is some teaching out there today in evangelicalism that Most of us shouldn't really worry about being sent ones. Let's just leave that to professionals. Listen, that's a bunch of crap. You are sent if you are called. What does that look like for you? Well, it probably doesn't mean for most of you that you're called to pastoral ministry, to get on pulpits and preach God's word. But what it does mean is that wherever God has called you right now, whatever you have going on in your life this week, you should be self-reflective about what it means to be a sent one what it means to love my neighbor, what it means to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ, what it means to reveal the Son to those who are around us. That is indubitably true of every Christian. Those who are called are sent. Paul's story reminds us of that as well. Paul can't stop thinking about not just how he got the gospel. He got the gospel in a way that gave him full authority as an apostle. He got the gospel through a direct revelation of Jesus. But he also can't stop thinking about how the gospel got him. It's, it's so captivated and revolutionized every aspect and fiber of his being that even when he's telling his story to legitimize his apostleship, he can't help but sneak in some of those parts of his story. Has what God has done in your story captivated you? Is the grace that he's shown in your life something that is so insatiably sweet in your, in your sight and in your thinking and in your living that it just rejuvenates you each week? Are you enraptured by what God has done in your story by bringing you into his great gospel story of redemption? Brothers and sisters, friends, let us be those who remember what God has done in our lives, in our stories, 
just as Paul remembered what God had done in his life and story, so that when we reflect on our own stories, we perk up, just like you do when Phil or I tell a good story in a sermon. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together under your word. We thank you for this part of the letter to the churches in Galatia where Paul reminds us through his own story that he did have the authority that you invested in him through the revelation of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and that what you revealed to him and what he proclaimed to churches then and through the word, what he proclaims to churches now is inspired by your spirit and is authoritative from you. And Father, we thank you that that is true for us and that we know that we can go to the Bible, uh, to Paul's letters and to every portion of your word and know that what we're getting here is, is sweet comfort and sometimes stern rebuke and sometimes uh, amazing reminders that all come vested with your full divine authority. And we thank you that Paul's story reminds us of the work, the work that you've done in our own lives and how you've changed our stories. And, oh, Father, we pray that the radical event of meeting Jesus and relating to him would have radical implications in the way we live our lives. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.